Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, just wanted to let you know about two different things. One of them is I wanted to remind you that we have a Close Reads on the Road event coming up in Atlanta in August. We are very excited to be talking about Southern short stories and the themes of home and faith. It's going to be a great time. I'll be there. Sean will be there. Heidi will be there. Tim will be there. In fact, we're meeting at Tim's church. And on the Saturday, uh, the Friday night, rather, we are going to be going to watch our Shakespeare play and have a great meal together. That's part of the registration. If you want to learn more about this, head over to closereads.substack.com. There's still some space left. We would love to see you there. Now, I also want to let you know about the sponsor for this episode. It comes from the Cersei Institute's apprenticeship program. Children are souls to be nourished, not products to be measured. And children also become what they behold. As teachers, these truths impact lessons, students, and ourselves. Do you want to contemplate how these truths impact your teaching? And does participating with a small cohort who read, discuss, and teach together interest you? If so, please consider the Circe Institute Master Teacher Apprenticeship Program. They gather in person for a week in the summer and a half week in February, and the rest of the year, the conversations are over Zoom. To learn more, you can visit their website, which includes an option to attend a live office hour with one of their head mentors. Seats are limited, so if you would like to claim one, please contact Andrea Lipinski, the head of the program, at Andrea, that's A-N-D-R-E-A, at CerseInstitute.org, or you can visit CerseInstitute.org to apply. Again, that's CerseInstitute.org to apply, or if you'd like to claim a seat right now, you can go to, you can email Andrea at CerseInstitute.org. So thanks to the Cersei Apprenticeship Program for helping sponsor this episode and making this podcast possible this week. All right, with that, let's get you to our first conversation on The Scarlet Letter. Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow-Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter. More specifically, we are discussing chapters four through eight this week. Um, We are going to be discussing it uh, through the lens, prism, I don't know. We're going to be using Karen's edition that she did through B&H, which has notes and a great introduction and some questions um, at the end of each chapter, a few of which might I might uh, cheat and rely on because there's some good questions there. First of all, though, Karen, how's it going? It's it's going great. Um, yeah, I didn't mention last time that I had gotten bit by a dog, um, and so I'm in recovery from that. But <laughs> like everything happens to you, you got hit by a I bus, know. you get bit I by know. a dog. I know, I know. It was like right around the same time. But I mean, five years later, so Someone I feel like I've been a novel though. about you, like an elaborate <laughs> novel with. You. Your tragic life. <laughs> I I know, and it's like I really hate drama, and the, here it is. There, but you I, are. I, yeah. there I am. But other, you know, I'm I'm settling into summer mode. It feels good. Um, yeah, rereading the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. So okay, you got bit by a dog. You just moved on from that. Are like you're okay? Oh um, yeah. Well, I have stitches and uh, and seeing a lawyer. Um, but uh yeah other than that it was a yeah it was a A lawyer and a doctor that's what you needed (laughs) exactly to start my summer so yeah yeah i was out running i was out running and on the the dog and i do carry pepper spray everyone's like don't you carry but i didn't see the dog until it was hanging off my arm so you know i'm just (laughs) oh my gosh this is what kind of dog was it a pit bull okay yeah wow Well, we're glad well, you're still standing. Yeah, there yeah. you are. Great to be here. Really great. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Heidi, okay, try to top that. I can't. I cannot top that. Like I am just sitting in my house. It's summer break, so I am happy, living the dream. I do love the school year, but man, those first couple weeks of summer break is just just feels like now, freedom. Karen, Heidi's about to embark on a trip. Heidi, well, would you like to tell us, tell the audience and tell Karen oh, where yeah. you were going? So my son, Jack, my 16-year-old son and I, he's actually turning 17 while we're on the trip, are going to Greece next week. 
Uh, we are just, we're doing a tour with Wes Callahan, one of our friends and the friends of the podcast. And mm. we, he's going to show us all around and we're going to go do like classical and Christian Greece. Cannot wait. Wow. Are you, that are you heavenly. Are you going to Athos? I mean, uh, you can't well, technically you know, can't, go into Athos, but, but we but are going, yeah, yes, could. <laughs> you know, the Holy Mountain, the monasteries of Mount Athos, yeah. women are not allowed, um, but uh, we are going to Meteora. Um, okay. And so we will be able to do a pilgrimage and see, and I'm, and it, Meteora is the monastery, I mean, has many monasteries, but one of them is the very famous one and that appeared in a James Bond movie, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of sad that it's famous for that because it's so much more than that. But it did. And it's when they used to pull the monks and the visitors up in baskets, there's no way to get to this monastery. Uh, mm-hmm. But now they have stairs. Um, but My first thought is, what kind of um, uh, checks did they go through to ensure the stability and safety of those baskets as they're being hauled up onto the mountain in like the 1800s? I guess like you just 1800s? have to trust God. It's a monastery. Yeah. You just yeah. have to put your faith in the rope. Yeah. It's a, it's a metaphor. Nathaniel Hawthorne yeah. could have written uh, about speak, that. I was going to say, speaking of metaphors and putting your faith in God, The Scarlet Letter is the book that we're talking about. Uh, we are not talking about, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey or something. <laughs> Another um, time. I want to ask a question about the way this book has been well thought about and the reputation that it's acquired over the years. We talked a little bit about it last week, but uh, you know, this is a book as we, as we discussed that almost everybody or many, many people read in high school. And is it, you know, I asked, well, why is it that this book has become such a fixture in, you know, curriculum, English curriculum for high schoolers all around the country. And Heidi, you mentioned something about how you think it's maybe because it's the metaphors, the images, they're kind of there on the surface. Um, As we've been reading it, the question came up to me again, and I'm trying to, like, do you have anything else to add to that? I'm trying to think if that's all it is, because, you know, there's lots of works that have that are dripping with metaphor, right? Where the, where the images and the, and the symbols and things like that are right there on the surface. But like, Karen, let me ask you this as a teacher and you teach college, but you said you also have taught high school. Um, One year. (laughs) As a teacher, what does this book, like what stands out about this book that would make you say, okay, this is the kind of book that should be in the canon of American literature, specifically in terms of introducing young people to American literature. Like what is it about it that makes it worthy of that place in your opinion? Or if you don't think it's worthy, at least that you think has uh, been the reason why other people do think it's worthy. <laughs> no, I absolutely think it's worthy. And I think when we're looking, I mean, you've opened up a, you know, a very controversial question by just bringing up the canon, but here we go. Right. Um, sure, yeah, <laughs> you knew what you were doing now. I mean, I think whenever we're looking at works that are in the canon, yeah. you know, we're basically looking at, at, two primary things that is the literary quality of the text but also the context you know so the place that the book has had in history and letters and um and and you know in this case it's the book and Hawthorne himself have in a prominent place in American history not just American literary history and so you are learning mm-hmm. not just about this book and not just studying its literary quality and the metaphors and the symbols and all of those great things but you're also um, studying the surrounding context of American history and and actually British history because you know that's is the history of the Puritans and and so it brings that part of American history. Mm -hmm. Uh, into play. So, um, I mean, I think this, when you talk about those two major things, text and context, this book is inarguably worthy of being included in the canon. And then it has the additional benefit of being relatively short. And and I I don't, you know, I don't, you know, yeah, it just, you only have so much time um, and it's better to read in a quality way in depth than to read something huge and you know, that's, that's going to be skimmed or just, you know, that there isn't enough time to cover adequately. So that, I'll, that contributes, I think, to it being a good classroom book. So the Scarlet Letter and the Great Gatsby become fixtures because they're not very long. Yeah. But they yeah. also have other qualities. Heidi, were you gonna, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think also because it has a very complex set of characters that are, that can be seen from multiple perspectives, all of them. 
uh, and um, especially those core characters, like really lend themselves to discussion, right? Like Chillingworth, especially in this section, we're seeing their complexity, their psychological complexity, the society's complexity come under the microscope under scrutiny in this section. And that I think lends itself to uh, great discussion within community. Like a classroom discussion is, I think, a really appropriate um, and useful way to read this book. Um, and then also... The, um, as you said, I really like what you said about the historical context. And then I also think that it is, it remains enduringly relevant, the, the, the questions that are raised from one generation to the next about women uh, and, and men and power and, uh, and all of those uh, very complex um, interplays that come into focus in this section of reading. So in this section... We are uh, introduced to Pearl, Hester's mm -hmm. little girl, um, and the sort of complicated relationship that Hester has with with her daughter, um, and that the community has with with Pearl as well. We are also um, introduced to uh, the what what was Bellingham's role, uh, the governor, I guess the governor, um, and there's. The, the section ends with this question of whether the baby should be taken away. Pearl should be taken away from Hester. And who comes to her defense? But once again, well, we don't exactly know who he is totally yet, but you kind of know. Uh, the, the, the baby's father comes to the defense. Um, and Karen, you brought up the, the historical question of Puritanism. And we talked a little bit about last week, a little bit last week about how Hawthorne seemed to have been responding to the complicated nature of his family's relationship and role within the, the, within the Puritan community that they came from. How much of that do you think you would need to know, or that you say you're teaching it, you would want your students to know to be able to really... Um, get at what this book is trying to do like can you not know about the origins of Puritan puritanism in america and the book still holds up and i don't ask that as like a leading please criticize the book type of question i'm just asking like if you're in terms of how you're thinking about teaching it or or your own interpretation how, what do you think about that yeah i mean for me teaching teaching anything i'm always bringing in context so for the way that I teach it would be important. But on the other hand, I mean, I think you can just kind of know Puritanism is a, is a 17th century religion that was strict and and was part of America's founding. I mean, it's, it's all clear. I, I still think the, um, the overwhelming themes, the tension between, you know, the genuine religion and hypocritical religion and, um, and people who bear titles but don't you know, perform the role that that title is supposed to fulfill. I mean, mm. I think all these themes are, are pretty obvious um, without even mm. having all the details. And I think just the more you know, probably the more you can um, get out of it with every reading. But I, I think it's a pretty, and, and that may be one of the reasons why it is so teachable. You don't have to have a PhD in American religious history, mm. uh, which I don't, um, to, to yeah. just really <laughs> see what, what Hawthorne is doing with this novel. And again, it's, there's a universality to that. Like those, those same themes apply to every person that's interested in or part of a religious community because they, those same questions keep coming up. You keep running into people who are like the people in this book in every generation. Um, that's why people who are the opposite or bear the good characteristics tend to stand out. Which brings me to a question that I had while reading this. Heidi, which characters in this do you think are most admirable? Admirable. Man, that is, that's a hard question to answer. I don't know that we have admirable characters, although I think that Hester is a bit idealized in her persecuted heroine status mm -hmm. within the novel. That's why I ask, because on yeah. the surface it could be her, but then does he really want us to admire her? Admire How are we supposed her, to think about her? Right. Yeah. Um, she is, and I think rightly so, this this is, I think, a good thing about the novel that I think she is idealized 
but she's idealized in her role as a persecuted heroine, in her role as a scapegoat. All, her character is more complex and uh, a little bit more multifaceted than somebody like Tess, who was pretty much perfect and persecuted the whole entire novel, right? Um, and and with Hester, we have somebody a little bit more nuanced, um, which is why I hesitate to say that she's admirable, but I do think that she is sympathetic and intentionally so. Mm. I don't so know that we've met anybody else admirable. John Wilson, to a certain extent, he's definitely the good cop, but I don't know if he's admirable. Do... So is this a book it's is it a book then that is about religion mm. and about faith and about religious community certainly that it doesn't is. have admirable people because there's a sort of dramatic irony in that tension mm-hmm. right i agree with that completely and i think in that way it is more like a modern novel uh in in that we're not given uh and we're not given an epic hero at the core of this novel that we're supposed to follow to the grave, right? Like this is this is a novel about flawed people in an impossible situation uh, within their society, uh, which creates for them a conflict that is insoluble, and and that is more like a modern novel, and and in that way, it's ahead of its time, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and a little bit more complex than something like Tess when we know who to like and who not to like right away, right? And so, it's the situation that's complicated. Here we have characters that are complicated within a complicated situation. Although I think that we know exactly who to villainize and that is the society. Like you think from the get-go. Yeah. We yeah, know that. Right. And that the characters who represent that society characters like Bellingham, for example, are a little bit less. They're a little bit more flat, right? Um, we know exactly that we're supposed to despise them um, and 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 wish that they had handled this situation better, to say it mildly, right? Um, mm-hmm. And but the the central four characters with with Hester and Pearl and Dimsdale and Chillingworth, they're all really complicated people. Here and there's a lot of talk that Hester, uh, how does how does it say, like, knows that her action was evil, or that the baby was wrought out of a sort of. I think the word evil gets used. That she knows that what she did was evil. The book is written in the 1800s about the Puritan times by someone who is not sure about Puritanism or is, rejects it. If if he is sure about it, does he think? that what she did was evil. Like, are we supposed to, as readers, is the book telling us... I think this is a great question. ...that what she did is evil and is agreeing with her? Like, what's the narrative perspective and Mm. whose narrative voice are we supposed to be buying or accepting when we hear things like that? Yeah, that that is a really great question. And I think... uh, Yeah, I've got so many thoughts running through my head for both (laughs) of these questions. Really good, really good questions, David. Um, So... I mean, I, I think in I think in one to go back to what Heidi was saying to your earlier question, which I think can help answer this question. Another, and I mentioned this in the introduction to my edition. Um, another way to look at this book, even though it's longer and novel length, is that it is kind of a ta- it is a tale. I mean, Hawthorne's genre is the short story, or you know, more specifically, the tale. And if you think mm-hmm. about the way a tale works, you know. Aesop's fables, for example, they come to mind. Like the characters, it, it's really not about the characters. The, it's really about the plot and the lessons we're supposed to learn. Um, and so um, I think that's one way this work um, functions as a tale. And so the way we're supposed to think about Hester, and a, t- a tale is all about how we interpret it, right? Now, Aesop is very nice uh, in tell- giving us the, you know, how we're supposed to interpret the little lesson <laughs> at the end of the fable. Um, but other tales are, are different, but we're we're still supposed to, as readers, kind of do the work and say, hmm, you know, what is this tale illustrating or teaching us? And I think the Scarlet Letter is the same way. And it, as much as the narrator gives us this Hester's view of of Pearl being evil and of, of you know, associated with, with origins of, with the 
demonic and her sin and so forth. We also get we get different perspectives. Other characters say even in the reading for today um, say the same say, say give an opposite view. And so I think what Hawthorne, you know, I think we're, I think the narrator wants us to do the interpretive work, to see the different mm-hmm. points of view and to ask ourselves these questions. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is like no normative um, narrative point of view that, that mm-hmm. we're supposed to adopt. Uh, and that's what makes it, it the story about interpretation, but also makes it hard too. I agree with that. I I really like how you said that because if it is a tale and if unlike a modern novel, we are not supposed to, I'm using air quotes, uh, look at it entirely from the character's perspective and, but also kind of zoom out and see it as uh, if you look at it like a tale or a fable, uh, then it's, becomes so complex from that interpretive perspective because typically tales are to teach a simple moral lesson. And in this case, it's the villains, so to speak, of the story who are teaching the simple moral lesson. And it's the narrative voice that complicates that uh, by giving us characters like like all of our central four that make the tale more nuanced uh, and more multifaceted than just don't commit adultery. Mm. It shifts the villain. It shifts the villain. And that 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 makes it a little bit more, um, not a little bit more, way more complicated. And that's intentional. And yet we kind of know what Hawthorne's perspective was or is on this world. So he does, he seems, he does allow that complicated POV, but also has things to say. Mm-hmm. It's not a novel that doesn't have things to say, but, you know, he doesn't start, it doesn't seem like he doesn't say things that he has to say. <laughs> he doesn't get his theses <laughs> out there with, uh, at the cost of developing the characters or it's all, all of it is rooted in the central dilemma of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just wrote something recently about how so many novels during our time right now have are about they're trying to say something they're trying to make a political statement they're trying to write in defense of something or or against something and so often the more you try to say to make a point you know make a point capital make a point whatever uh the the more it's the less it seems like actually gets said um but here he maybe this is another reason why it gets taught is he's making these he's articulating big ideas and he's making big arguments but but it works. We remember it 200 years later still because it's rooted. The arguments are rooted in the, in the characters and their dilemmas, which kind of brings me back to Pearl, I think. Um, Always. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Heidi, what do you think of Pearl? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think what you said is really um, insightful, like that everything kind of, it's like all roads lead to Pearl, right? All roads lead to the Scarlet Letter. It's an aptly named book. Um, and the Scarlet Letter is so complex because it reflects, uh, first of all, the judgment of the society. And that judgment is under indictment by the author uh, and the narrator of this story. Um, also, the letter and by extension, Pearl, because the novel just tells us Pearl is the Scarlet Letter. Like that's she, that's directly told to us, right? Mm. Um, that like the scarlet letter itself it's also the scar it's also a ref- pearl is also a reflection of her mother and and hester is this very like she doesn't fit in to this society even if she hadn't committed adultery she never she would not have fit in right and 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 then we're left with this like which comes first the chicken or the egg right did she commit adultery because she didn't fit in or does she not fit in because she committed adultery right it's this perpetuating cycle based on the fact that she is just kind of according to our narrator a special kind of person like she's more uh, and that the the scarlet letter itself is intricately created and crafted by her um, it also reflects her, right? It's a really complex symbol. Um, and it's, I think, brilliant. Uh, there's a reason why it's been enduring within our culture. We say it all the time about women even now, right? Oh, look, that uh, like any anytime there's some kind of like 
fallen woman in society, always there's a reference to the Scarlet Letter um, within pop culture, right? She's more, she's more, she has this melancholy temperament, right? She's intricate or elaborate, also beautiful, dazzling. Like she, she doesn't fit into a prescribed Puritan society. And therefore her child, just like the Scarlet Letter, her child reflects that this is this would have been i mean as you pointed out david it was written later but he does i think a good job of embedding per, uh, the novel within the perceptions of its own time of the 1600s which would have been renaissance late medieval and there would have still been this lingering idea in the 1600s that that the uh, the child of a union reflects the character of their parents and that that the sins of the father are carried by the child um and that physical uh, characteristics manifest the internal character, right? We see that in Ro Roger Chillingworth too. Like he's deformed, just like his soul, right? And and with Pearl, she has this beauty and this flamboyance, like her mother and like her mother's sin, right? And and that makes her a complex Pas character. Passion is the word that keeps getting used That's to describe right. both the sin and the girl. That's right. Yep. So. Karen, you ask a question in your reflection questions in chapter six, and one of them is just how does the description of Pearl's character correspond to her name, which would be a great conversation to have in a classroom, but maybe also on a podcast. So given what Heidi's saying here, um, do you want to, do you want to discuss that a little bit? Because I think the choice of the names, as we discussed last week, is purposeful. It's a big, big Hawthorne thing. <laughs> uh, and, um, and then you ask after that, what is the effect of words like imp and sprite being used to describe Pearl? So we've got this name, and then but then there's also these other terms that he uses. And so how are the ways that she is described um, important in terms of revealing her character and, and what some of the things Heidi's talking about? Yeah, um, I mean, just in the beginning of chapter six, um, the narrator tells us, you know, her name is... Um, linked with luxuriance um mm -hmm. and that it at the bottom of um or well my edition 153 um we're told that hester named the infant pearl as being of great price and you know obviously that uh, is is apt um also i mean i don't think the book says this but i think most there was you know per, a, a pearl was such a common type um, in literature of this period and, and earlier. Um, and so people would just sort of know that the way a pearl is made is, you know, in secret and through some sort of like irritant, you know. So um, that's very mm -hmm. fitting that there are some secret sin, um, grain, uh, dirt that produced this beautiful thing. Um which, you know, of which is also complicated, as, as Heidi pointed out, because of her link to, uh, you know, evil and sin. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting later as I was rereading this when she goes to the governor's hall and uh, she's being introduced and they ask her name. Um, chapter, that, this in chapter eight. It, uh, oh, yeah, it is in chapter. Yeah. Chapter eight was where they're having the communication. Um and uh, let's see, I guess it's Governor Bellingham who asks her name and who she is. And he, she says, my name is Pearl. And he says, Pearl, Ruby rather, or Coral, or Red Rose, at the very least, judging from thy hue. So it's, you know, they're even contesting like what her proper or appropriate name should be based on her appearance, as, as Heidi said. And, yeah, I don't know if this metaphor suits you, is basically what yeah, he said. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's explicitly said um, in this in this important setting. Um, and so... I mean, again, it, it's it's so simple, but obvious. This symbol of, of using the name Pearl, um, mm -hmm. I, but yeah, it's it's layered in many ways, and Hawthorne uses it in many ways, even in the scene where they're just even questioning the questioning the metaphor. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I think there are so many things we could say. There's a great poem um, from I want to say the 18th century from a lesser known British writer. I'd have to look it up. I can't remember now. It's called The Pearl and it's like several pages long. Um, and it is, you know, it, it's it's talking about, 
is using the pearl as a type of the Christian faith and as a type of Christ, actually, in so many more ways than you could ever even imagine. It's a brilliant poem. Now, now someone, I need, I want someone out there to go look it up and comment on it in the Substack because um, there's an unknown the, author actually, so you're oh, on the right track. Yep, it's a Middle <laughs> English poem. <laughs> Oh, oh, it's oh, it's not. Oh, I think it's a different one. I think it's a later one, but um, I don't think it's the Middle English one. Uh, it's, but anyway, um, so the pearl was a common symbol, a common type, uh, and and associated with the Christian faith. And so Hawthorne uses it, but also complicates it here. Um, so George I think it's Herbert? brilliant. Is it George Herbert? There's a it was not. I would remember okay. that. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm, All right. <laughs> She's going to go mute. She's going to look it up. Yeah, I'm muting myself to find it. Okay. (laughs) Um, Heidi, were you going to say something a second ago in response to what she was saying? No, I just, I just think that we, to your point, you said earlier, I just think you said a mouthful when you said like, it all comes back to Pearl. Um, Pearl is also presented in this section as the, not only the emblem or the embodiment of Hester's wicked action, but also her only chance of salvation. And, and in that sense, she becomes, uh, there's another layer, like Karen, you use the word layered to describe the symbolism uh, of, of the child. And, and then we're directly told at the end of this section, at the end of chapter eight, that Hester, which is a little bit on the nose. And here's where Hawthorne maybe sometimes could have, you know, if it was a modern novel, he might have used an editor. Um, but when we're told directly from the narrator that she that Hester would have gone to the black mass and signed her name in the black book if if the child, if Pearl had been taken yeah. from her. I want to ask um, about that paragraph at some yes. point. Yes. And so I'm not Pearl is not just an embodiment of sin. She is also the path to salvation for Hester and perhaps other, by extension, perhaps other characters whose salvation hangs in the balance, although Hester's the one on this, on, you know, in front and center in society. Uh, and, and, and that is interesting, right? That is, I think, Hawthorne at his most complex and his most brilliant is asking some of the same questions that we see in somebody like Graham Greene and um, the end of the affair. Is the affair, is the great sin that these people have committed, they're also their only chance of salvation, right? In mm-hmm. encountering their own sin, do they encounter their own path to God? And and Hawthorne raises this question in The Scarlet Letter. Um, and and to, so I, I think that we also have to remember Pearl is um, she is more than just emblematic of sin. It's both. Well, I think one of the things that is fascinating about how Hawthorne explores that is in the tensions that he, he, he creates tension in the way that people respond to her. Hmm. Like she has a vivacity and a personality and, and a beauty that people don't always know how to interpret or how, or just how to respond to. Even Hester sometimes doesn't know what to do with her. Um, you know, as with many great women, right? You don't always know what to do with them, but then how to respond to them is what I mean to say. And then um, you have the children, the other children don't know how to respond to her. And she has a, a vivacity that like overpowers them in a way she can run at a group of children and scare them off, you know? And then the adults, these men don't, they don't know what to do with her, how to respond to her. I mean, uh, uh, shoot. And now, now uh, Dinsdale, seems to have a you know a connection there's twice now that she has sort of reached out to him in a way she she responds to him uh in a sort of almost supernatural or at least deeply poetic way um and so the way so hawthorne uses that i think that tension to enhance what you're talking about there heidi how she's both emblematic of the sin but also the salvation and that tension for that to really work, the narrator, the, the book has to sort of have a tension almost in that. And so we as reader then are left with a little bit of tension on how to respond to her too. Because there are moments when you're like, maybe there is something a little bit off with her, you know? And then there's sometimes when you're like, wow, she's, this is a very special child, right? Heidi, your screen just froze. Okay. Karen, is she frozen for you? <laughs> 
Do I have you, like big bug eyes? You had screen? big bug eyes making yep. and you were drinking something. Yeah. So yep. it was just like, I looked up in the middle of my comment and saw that face and it was like, either it was a great comment or just the worst thing I've ever said on the podcast. Right. Um, anyway, so there's this, you know, the way he, there's this tension in the way that he presents her that, that we have to kind of uh, process in, as we're reading and we'll see how that works out. But I think, I think he's pretty masterful in how he does that. Karen, did you find what you were looking for? I was trying to give you a second there. Yeah, I did not find the pearl. It's it's yeah, I it did, I didn't find the pearl thing. It's a very minor poem, so I don't think Google's going to show it. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna find it and and tell you afterwards, <laughs> whatever. Okay. But um, but then I was looking for a quote that that from uh, it was from is in chapter six. It kind of gets at what we were just talking about this tension, um, and I just love this passage on page one fifty four. Um, where Hester's thinking about Pearl and she says, um, God is a direct consequence of the sin which man thus punished had given her a lovely child who, whose place was on that same dishonored bosom to connect her parent forever with the race and descent of mortals and to be finally a blessed soul in heaven. That sentence, I guess it's one sentence, captures that tension, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so it, because she reflects Hester's sin so connects her with you know the the race of mortals that's that sinned um but also is what allows her to be finally a blessed soul in in heaven um and that's the complication in a nutshell and it just gets more complicated throughout and it talks too about how what does it call her like a little immortal or an immortal soul or something so on the one hand she is both she's symbolic both of the sin and the salvation, but she also is an individual soul herself. And nobody else recognizes that. Everybody kind of looks at her as if she's just symbolic of her mother's shame. And Hester, you know, sees her as this individual child, but doesn't necessarily know how to... She's trying to parent her as an individual child and is, doesn't know how to do that. And maybe Dimsdale a little bit is the, only, the, pers- the first person who seems to look at her as... But even he, even he says, well, she's just, she's the salvation of the mother. So I don't, maybe he, even he doesn't really see her as an individual, but that's one of the, that's where some of the pathos in the book comes for me is that we have this girl who is, everyone sees her as a symbol, even in the book, not just the readers, but the people in the book, the other characters see her as a symbol, but she's also an individual. I think there's a lot of pathos for this little girl in, in the, built in that. How are we going to say something? And, and for Hester, because I think everything you just said about Pearl could also be said about Hester. But to your point, Hester is not the innocent um, and undeserving. Like she has made complicated choices in this pres- very prescribed society, um, but Pearl hasn't. And so she does have more pathos. But then I think one of the questions that's raised by the novel is, is this just an occupational hazard of being a beautiful woman, right? Is this just what it, what, what that means um, that, uh, that you become kind of a magnet for other people's interpretations, preoccupations, desires, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and that that's both your power and your pathos, right? And that's complicated. Like a Helen of Troy thing. Yeah. Can I segue into something going back yeah. to the beginning of this? So, yeah, because this is, I, I just find this so powerful and interesting. It's, it's in chapter four, the interview, which, and the interview. And by the way, I, I mentioned this uh, every time it applies to a work we discuss. Um, because today, t- modern books don't tend to use titles for chapters. And I just right, love, yeah. I just, I don't know. I just appreciate some, you know, Hawthorne telling us, okay, chapter four, the interview, that, that's the really important part of this because there's a lot going on, lots of description and background. Yeah. And, but the really important thing is this conversation that Hester has with Chillingworth, whom I think it becomes clear, pretty clear in this chapter that who, who he is and, her, oh yeah, it, it does become clear, obviously in this passage, I'm going to, you know, that, that he is, uh, the doctor who appears and is uh, her husband. Um, and so they have this discussion um, in chapter four about their their mismatched marriage um, and that, you know, and, and Chillingworth takes sort of responsibility um, for 
for marrying someone that he was not well suited for in age and situation and so forth. And he says um, that it was his folly and his weakness. Um, and in some ways he just had no, he set her up for this failure um, because, you know, it's a clearly like a December, May marriage and he's more interested in his, you know, his intellectual pursuits and so forth. Um, and they have this almost like argument about who has wronged each other more, uh, which also we, yeah, there's a conversation like that in Tess between Alec and Tess on their on their wedding night. Um, but Hester, you know, Hester says she has wronged him. She admits that. And he says, we have wronged each other. Mine was the first wrong when I betrayed thy budding youth into a false and unnatural relation with my decay. Um, I mean, there's just a whole lot packed in here about marriage and um, and. It was it obviously would not have been an unusual thing during this time for an older man who's probably been widowed once or twice to marry a younger woman. Um, and that's another complication, I think, that Hawthorne offers is he is kind of um, he's ahead of his time again in, in seeing maybe the problematic nature of, of at least this particular marriage um, that Chillingworth recognizes, but doesn't you know, he doesn't necessarily correct in the right way. So. Yeah. So how how uh, villainous is Chilling is Chillingworth? I mean, it's a pretty villainous name. <laughs> yeah, the name is villainous, and then I mean, clearly, this is this is probably one of the clearest things that Hawthorne does in this novel is just to show Chillingworth's um, deformity continuing to decay. Um, and I, I think that I, I think is ingenious, and even in in chapter eight in when they're supposed to be discussed and they do discuss Pearl and what to do with Pearl and whether Hester is proper, the proper person to raise her, it kind of funnels into this, um, this little tete-a-tete between Shillingworth and Dimsdale where mm -hmm. when you, once you know what's going on, if you know, if it's not clear the first time reading and you go back and reread it, it becomes more clear. They're sort of jabbing at one another and, um, you know, and and Chilling, Chillingworth says something like, uh, on, on page 192, he says, she's a strange child after this whole episode. It is easy to see the mother's part in her. Would it be beyond a philosopher's research, thinky gentleman, to analyze that child's nature and from its make and mold to give a shrewd guess at the father? And we already know at this point that Chillingworth has kind of uh, figured it out and is already, you know, kind of digging his uh, poisonous... Um, knife into uh dimsdale's side and so this is just kind of setting up the psychological part of that um relationship that gets developed later on so yeah hmm. i don't know where i was going with that but i just i just um <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah that's... there's so much there <laughs> yeah Do you... I... oh go ahead david no go ahead I just find Chillingworth to be, for me, he's the most compelling character in the novel so far. I mm. think he's so fascinating um, because he's in the right, right? Like he is the cuckolded husband. Like he has done nothing wrong. And. Except and, for some of the things that he says that he did wrong. And then, and then he abandoned her. Yeah. She's in a, she's in yeah. a, I mean, the whole thing opens up. He's, he's coming back because he's been gone for you know, I, I, I think it's like exactly a year uh, right. as the math works out. So he is, he is wrong. He is, of course he is. I mean, he is, he's, he's Chillingworth. He had that name, right? He's sinister. He's menacing. Every time he's on stage, so to speak, he, there's, he makes himself felt with such a chilling presence. Like I think Hawthorne builds him in that way. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me. I can't help but compare him to Karenin and Anna Karenina. Uh, they, they, there's this type, right? If you, there's a lot of adultery novels, right? A lot of novels that, that explore this, um, that the conflicts that are raised through yeah, adultery. Yeah, I mean, go to the Iliad, right? Yes, exactly. And the husband of an adulterous wife is, is, like it creates such like a crisis of masculinity in every character and not in every actual human person who goes through this too. Um, but in the novels for sure that 
And and they tend to be one of two types in novels, right? Either like the dim-witted, like husband that wasn't paying attention to his wife and he lost her because he's not worthy, right? That That's more like um, Henry in the end of the affair. And then on the other side, the other one is a little bit more creepy. That's like usually like the self-righteous husband, right? And that that's what we have with Chillingworth. That's what we have with Corinnan. And that they, they cling so tightly to their... Uh, to to how they have the high ground um, and then become like vengeful and self-righteous within the story and create so much havoc as a result of that. And then we're left as readers trying to figure out like, where, where do I, where do I stand? You can't help but not like that guy. You hate that guy, but, and rightly so. But on the other hand, he was like, they're, even though Hester is sympathetic, she has done something irreparable within their mm-hmm. marriage. And, and that is left like a crater in the middle of the novel, especially I think with Hawthorne, he does humanize him a bit. And, and saying when he, when he makes his statement to Hester about how lonely he was and how he longed to let someone into his heart. And then he did with Hester um, there. Like Hawthorne does, I think, make an effort, and I think he succeeds in in humanizing Chillingworth at least at the beginning of when we first meet him. Yeah, I mean, it's after a while it becomes difficult to humanize somebody. So you I think he does make an effort early on. It's another place where the some of the tension of the story is, though, right? Right. Um, he's at a certain point. At a certain point, a lot of these stories, including some of the ones that you're mentioning you start asking questions about, is there a sin that's worse than the others? Like does, does, is it's it, duty is and there, desire. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is one, does one sin justify a response to it or does, does it just beget another sin that creates this cycle? And, um, it seems like, it seems like in a way Hawthorne is trying to, is he criticizing, you talked about the, how do the idea of criticizing the community, but like, is he is he criticizing Puritanism itself in that dynamic of you know one sin responding to another sin and the notion like how he defines sin and mm. and the repercussions of sin like is that part of his criticism of of Puritanism Absolutely. or is that like it is okay I think so I think that really if you go underneath Puritanism if you use if you say Puritanism is the context of Hawthorne's contemplation I think you have what is the nature of sin. Like what is, and uh, like, what is sin? He keeps asking that question. And how do we respond to it? Is it intrinsic within humanity? Which the Puritans would say is, right? They're Calvinists. So we are totally depraved. Sin yeah, is in, fact, in they sent, us. During the English Civil War, they would send people who didn't believe that to various towers. Right. <laughs> or stocks. Or, right. Or is sin extrinsic? Is it something that we respond to that we're tempted by and fall to? Right. And and in that case, if and, and it matters very much how you define sin and how you respond to the characters in his stories. That's true in the birthmark, that's true in Marble Fun, that's true certainly in Young Goodman Brown. And definitely, like that's at the core of the Scarlet Letter. I think he's raising the question. And then the Puritan culture, uh, with their strong stance and with their uh, you know, psychological, theological and um and political identity. They're the perfect subculture to ask this question within. Um, and, and I think he does. He's raising these questions. What is what we call sin? Now we've lost in, in, in modern, in modernity, we don't have as much of a concept of sin like people you know unless you're a religious person you don't really talk about sin anymore you talk about wounds or whatever but um it's more therapeutic um and that's not a terrible thing um but for most of christian culture certainly the question of sin is just enduring um and there's a lot of baggage connected with that word and he's bringing it up in this book Aaron, you're nodding. Or is that you're you wanting? To, yeah, yeah. I'm is, just, is that a thoughtful I'm, nod, like you want to disagree, yeah. or is it? No, a, no, no. I know. <laughs> this has been. This is such a great discussion today. It's got me thinking about a lot of things. Um, and 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 this is the this is one of the points that you know the themes that I highlight in my in my notes and my questions is is not just the question of sin, but also guilt, right? And so, 
so Hawthorne, you know, and it seems intentional. So, so the, the, the stereotypical Puritan response to sin, to Hester's sin is to punish her in a very, you know, um, judicial and physical material way. I mean, she's put on the scaffold and yeah, public, uh, goes, you know, serves her term in jail and is then, uh, is, is, um, is, what am I looking for? You know, separated from society. Um, and, and we, you know, we know, we know, or you can guess, I mean, things turn out much better for Hester than it does for, um, anyone who doesn't, who is bearing the secret burden of sin and guilt. Um, but one thing that this discussion has made me think about that I hadn't so much before, um, is because however, you know, Chillingworth, as we've said, is, is, is not guilty in this adultery. Um, Mm -hmm. He confesses to being, you know, having wronged Hester in other ways that are less like overtly moral or violation of God's law, but he still recognizes. So for him, the issue really is forgiveness. And and I think this came to mind because, you know, we're we're recording this in the aftermath of the death of Tim Keller and lots of things have been said about him. And so this past weekend, I actually listened for the first time to his iconic sermon on forgiveness, uh, which I think is goes back like to 2008 or something. I mean, he wrote a book on that, but there's also, I think it was was his last book came out last year. It's called forgive how I can and why I should or something like that. And and so there's a sermon that he, that's years old that was circulating. I listened to it It was so good and so powerful. Um, But I think what we see in all these characters, but especially Chillingworth is exactly what Keller was talking about. In, in when we fail to forgive and 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 if, you know I won't try to repeat Keller's um, brilliant mm-hmm. wisdom go listen to it for yourself but um but what he was talking about is what we see happening with with Chillingworth because that is exactly what he refuses to do is he kind of you know he's not, his vengeance isn't really on Hester because she's just the woman right but his vengeance is on you know on Esther's um, partner in adultery, and that ruins him. Um, so, Hawthorne and Keller, you know, they're you know, <laughs> kindred spirits. <laughs> it's I, it'd be interesting to think about this question of forgiveness as it relates to that last paragraph in chapter eight, because we know Hoth- the idea of um, witchcraft and the punishment of supposed witches is something that shows up repeatedly in Hawthorne's work and was something that his what was his great grandfather was involved in the Salem Witch Trials or something like that. So at the end of chapter eight, Heidi, you mentioned this earlier and I said I wanted to bring it up. So I would like to do that before we ends. But it says here, if we suppose this interview betwixt Mistress Hibbins and Hester Prynne to be authentic and not a parable, was already an illustration of the young minister's argument against sundering the relation of a fallen mother to the offspring of her frailty, even thus early had the child saved her from Satan's snare. So it'd be interesting to think about the, the question of forgiveness as relates to the question of witches, I guess, (laughs) in Hawthorne's work. I don't really know how else to put it. Um, But do so when we get a line like that, is he being earnest or is he being ironic? There's a sense in which it seems like maybe he's kind of, or maybe he's being sarcastic almost about now. I don't know if people wrote novels sarcastically in this time, but is he being sarcastic about the, I guess what I'm trying to say is we know how he felt about this whole, all this witch business. Right. And then he drops a line like that. So where is our, what is our narrator's, perspective and goal in dropping a paragraph like that. Heidi, you said it's a little on the nose, maybe a little bit like teachery. Yeah. Right? So it is, but is that earnest? Is that Hawthorne right. being earnest or is that a bit of like narrative irony? That's a good question because uh I mean you raised the question earlier that are we whose narrative voice are we listening to, right? Are we is this a um is this like Austin, when we have indirect discourse, like free indirect discourse, are we are we only seeing what the how the characters would interpret it, even though it sounds like it's um, omniscient, um, or do we have, to your point, a really I like the word earnest. Like, are we? Is this a morality tale? Um, and, and Karen did say it's a t- it's like a tale, you know. Yeah, and I I think that 
it's, as Karen said, it's, that is left in the hands of the reader. It's an interpretive question. Um, it's more interesting if there's some tongue in cheek there, right? It's more interesting more if, if their narrator does not believe everything that he, every claim that he, every moral claim that he's making about sin and consequences and guilt um, and even the spirit. It's a little Shakespearean. Problem. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it just struck me as I hadn't before that that um, Hawthorne is like he's just thoroughly phenomenological, right? Huh. He, I, I mean, because I, I wanted to talk about this passage too because you know these are the last few passages, uh, paragraphs of chapter eight where he describes um, Mistress Hibbins, and of course, it's a great jab that she's um, Governor Bellingham's sister, mm-hmm. right? And so, so the narrator tells us that um, I'm go- going a little backwards here that that. Um, that she is later um, executed as a witch, okay? Which we know that Hawthorne is not in favor of executing people for being witches, and he doesn't believe in witches. And yet he describes Mistress Hibbins. I mean, this character, the little bit we have of her, she acts very much the way that people who were thought to be witches acted in that time. And it almost seems like Mistress Hibbins does see herself as whatever a witch is. But again, you don't have to witchcraft. Well, we, that's, it is, it is real. Okay. We know that the Bible warns us against it, but you don't have to believe something doesn't have to be real for you to believe in it and behave according to it. And then like, behave in response to it, like executing them. I mean, so so witchcraft is real, but what the Puritans saw uh, or believed that certain people were doing and affecting was not real. Um, and yet um, they still responded in, in that way. And so I think that's a lot of what Hawthorne is doing. He's not telling us that this is true or that is true or this is truth or this is a lie. He's saying, here's how people saw it and experienced it. Now, how are you going to respond to what you and experience you see and experience, whether or not it's that thing is um, it, it correlates to the reality of the universe? And in Hawthorne's case, it's not so much in this book, but in a lot of the stories, I think it's also commenting on the way that that is shaped by the creation of a new culture. In a, what is essentially a wilderness. So the Puritans are trying to bring, they left a culture that they didn't feel like was, you know, appreciated them. <laughs> and so they were trying to create this new culture in a land that was essentially, essentially a wilderness. So in this wilderness, in this more or less dangerous foreign place where they're trying to make their homes, they run up against these, pheno- you know, the, these, uh, these things that scare them mm-hmm. in the wilderness, right? And so they respond harshly to them they respond like scared people <laughs> um and th- this book doesn't get into that as much as i think some of his stories do in terms of like younger than brown like the forest is everything right um a little bit less so in this book at least so far um hi what were you were you going to add to what she was saying i just really loved that um that the idea of him being phenomenological, like he's he's asking the question as perception reality, and uh, and the you know there's a as you're bringing up Karen, there's a whole school of philosophers who say yes, there is some there is a reality out there, like there is that is a tree. However, we have no idea whether the tree I see with my eyes is is what it is a true representation of the object that's out there. Right. And so to your point, that's what Hawthorne is raising the question. Witchcraft exists, evil exists, right? Uh sin, wickedness, uh, guilt exists. However, is is the reality of what guilt and sin is, is is that what Hester has done and deserves, right? And what is the what's the disconnect between our perceptions of sin and the reality of sin? And and that is a really, really good and enduringly relevant question. Well, um, and, and going to, Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you're lagged there for a second. 
I was I was just gonna say that that could that goes back to what I was saying about trying to build a culture though, because right. if you're afraid that that the impacts of somebody's sin are going to diminish your ability to build a culture are gonna harm your society, then you respond accordingly, right? Like, you know, it's you don't have to something doesn't have to actually be true for you to believe that it's gonna harm you, as what Karen was saying. Right. Um so, I feel like we've just nailed this novel <laughs> in a way that, at least for me, I, you know, that it's very revelatory and I hadn't seen before. And I think it's actually profound and helpful. And there's so many um, parallels that I won't mention. You can just figure out your own. I just think there are so many parallels that we're facing today in our culture as we're, you know, making and fashioning a culture and, and seeing things that really you know, do cause us fear because we see evil in them. And yet is the, you know, are we seeing, you know, is our perception of the evil um, accurate to what it really is? Mm. So many questions. And sometimes (laughs) it's hard to know. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't always know the answer to that in the moment, in the time that you live. I was thinking recently that the time between, what is it, Henry VIII and the Puritans in the English Civil War, which was was less time yeah, it wasn't very long than about what a generation. it's yeah. what it's been between like our civil war and now. And so, mm. you know, we, it's, that seems like a long time ago, but when you look at our civil war, it seems like a long time ago. And in a way it was, but when you look at the shifts of these great cultures that have lasted a lot longer than ours have, the amount of time that our country has been a thing is not very long and right. it's evolving and changing and growing and mutating. <laughs> And it's hard to know what, what what does it mean? What does our age mean in the grand scheme of things? What should we be afraid of and what should we celebrate? All those sorts of things play into that. We're still in the wilderness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta, sometimes I think about like different, like, so say 1776 to now is, it's not that far, right? Compared to, but then that was like, this, the Anglo-Saxons ruled the wilderness of England before the Normans conquered from or there even the Vikings came from longer than that. <laughs> and, and things are happening so fast now. It's like human society and human psyche can't survive, mm-hmm. I think, or, or respond to the rate at which things are changing now. I think that's one of the big crises of our time is we're not capable of changing along with mm-hmm. the, the ages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we have our own, ways of branding people with scarlet letters, right? Amen. That's the um, truth. I think Karen's written about this a time or two though. So I've been on Twitter. I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you have a book coming out not too long from now, right? I do. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Last week I didn't ask you what you're what you've been up to. Well, I, yeah, I've been doing podcasts about this already. So and since you asked, yeah, so this is the evangelical imagination, how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. And it's it's a little less about the imagination, the way close read people might think about it. It's more about Charles Taylor's social imaginary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to make a connection there. And we are actually, just for anyone interested, you can see check all my social media platforms. Um, we're forming a, law, a book club and launch for the book. So anybody who wants oh, to get nice. Yeah, if they pre-order it, they'll get an advanced copy of it um, for a book club that we'll just do meet four times over the summer on Zoom to talk about the book. And then you'll get a little bling and the, the actual copy when it releases <laughs> August 8th. So August yeah. 8th, okay. So yeah. yeah, you're coming up. You're going to be doing a summer of press. Yeah. Oh, yes. Promotion. And it's already started. Started. So... Yep. Yep. Trying to get those pre-orders in. Yep. And they, and and for anyone listening, those really do matter. So um, have mercy, and if you have it in you, and pre-order. Well, what I'll do then is I'm going to send out a kind of a newsletter update with a bunch of different links and things that are interesting, and I'll include in that a link to the pre-order for that through our shop. Um, awesome. awesome. So. Thanks. Maybe mutually beneficial thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and one more plug for the book, regardless of what you think of the words that I wrote in it, it does have like a center of like, I think 18 or 19 full color plates of artwork hmm. and different things. And I don't even have that yet. I can't wait to see it. Um, that's awesome. I mean, I saw it on my laptop, but yeah, so it's got beautiful um illustrations and paintings in it that um all the art lovers will love i hope so yeah 
That's cool. Multimedia. Yes. Well, this has been really fun. Heidi, do you have anything you want to promote or plug or anything? Nope. Nope. I'm just going to leave it there. Bye, Karen. She's just going to go to Greece. That's right. (laughs) Well, thanks to you both. This has been fun. As I said, Uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget, you can uh, support the show on our Substack. It's closereads.substack.com. We are working our way through Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. We've got a few weeks left on the Paralandra before we jump into that hideous strength. And pretty soon, we are going to announce our next book. We've got a couple... We're going to narrow it down from a couple different options here before we can officially announce that. But um, be on the lookout for that. And and uh, yeah, there's lots of great stuff going on. Also, the Daily Poem just relaunched. So you can check that out. Um, thanks to everybody who has been sending us lots of kind words about how they're glad that that is back in their routine. Uh, when we stopped doing it to, during the time we were getting the shop going, I wasn't really sure how much it meant to people. I just thought it was, you know, some people said it was good. It got some good reviews. But then I started getting emails of people being like, you're ruining my life. Can this podcast please come back? I need those five minutes a day. I literally got an email that said that. Um, I think it was tongue in cheek. I'm hoping it was tongue in cheek, but it's been really nice um, to hear from people who are excited that that is back. Um, So we've just got, we've got a lot of stuff going on here. And uh, Karen, I just want to ask you before we go though, are you doing more of your podcast on uh, Jane and Jesus? Yeah, no, that is not continuing just because the company that was producing it is uh, it. Like, okay. yeah, not doing broke up. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm actually thinking about doing a sub stack and I might want to talk to you about that, David. I don't even know how it works. I'm getting all these lovely notifications and I, do, I don't mean that sarcastically. Like I'm getting notified about the people commenting on this on, and it's kind of, it's really cool. It, it makes me want to want to do it, um, although I'm not sure. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, if you have any questions, you can email me. We can talk about it. <laughs> all right, well, for Heidi White and for Karen Swallow Pryor, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.